0: Hello and welcome to The Stack this week. We'll take you to the dance floor with iconic dance music title DJ Mag. Plus, I visited the Barbican this week for their incredible exhibition of Claudia and Dujar's pictures of the Yanomami people in Brazil. And we also discussed travel writing with Tim Hannigan. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack. 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Coming up on the show, I speak with Thiago Nogueira, curator of Claudia and Dujar Exhibition at the Barbican Centre here in London. Plus Tim Hannigan on his new book, The Travel Writing Tribe, Journeys in Search of a Genre. But first on the show, a magazine that I've been following for years as a dedicated fan of electronic music. DJ Mag. The British title was founded in 1991 and has a strong international presence, with editions also in Brazil, France, among other countries. I had the pleasure to speak with their editor, Carol Loban, on the title and what's next for the industry.
1: It has been a very challenging 15 months or so since the, the pandemic started. Yeah, we, we kind of... Um, before the government actually initiated it, we we started working from home in the middle of March, transporting our work computers to our our home, our, to our houses and and so on. And so yeah, we've been working remotely for the last fifteen months, and it's definitely had its own challenges in terms of communication and and what have you. Because when you're all in the same office together, you can just you can just say, hey, have you got a photo of da da or or you know, it can have very instant communication whereby working remotely we use this um, platform called slack to communicate with each other internally but um that can be quite quite a slow process sometimes you know somebody could be on a zoom call or another slack channel or something and when you want an instant reply that doesn't always happen so the odd thing has kind of fallen through the cracks i suppose but in general terms we've always got it done to the deadline anyway and what we did actually initially is pause the the magazine for three months when the pandemic started and we were trying to get a handle on on everything and, and obviously all music events stopped which they still and they're still pretty much in the uk anyway haven't haven't properly restarted quite yet but there's there's been plenty of other stuff to to write about in terms of, of feature content and what have you there's always people releasing music and albums and and there's been issues that have arisen out of the pandemic as well i suppose that we've that we've covered so so yeah it's been um it's, it's, it's been challenging and, and it did look i suppose not great financially for a while but we seem to have come out the other end of that now absolutely well that that's excellent
0: news and, and just for a little bit of a background for those who don't know dj mag it's an institution i believe the magazine was founded in 1991 since when have you been uh, involved
1: with uh, dj mag well, oh, I've been involved in DJ Mag for uh, many, many years. Um, yeah, the, it, the, the magazine um, has just passed its 30th birthday. Initially, before beforehand, it was a kind of magazine for mobile DJs, people who DJs who play at weddings and that sort of thing. But when the with the the kind of explosion of electronic music in the late 80s, early 90s in the UK, it kind of morphed into covering the whole spectrum of, of dance music, really. And I, I started freelancing, I think, in the 90s, I was, I was freelancing for um, a title called Melody Maker, which was kind of like the rival to NME at the time, and also some, some other dance music mags. And I kind of started freelancing for DJ in 97, 98. And by around the millennium, I was kind of on the staff. And I've been there ever since, pretty much, more or less. So yeah, I'm now the, the editor in chief.
0: Well, that, that's that's fantastic. And another thing about DJ Mag that I find quite curious and, and interesting is how international it is as well. I mean, you have some kind of international versions of it. So even though, of course, the main title is here in the UK, uh, but tell us about it. It's very international. We have a big online presence as well.
1: Yeah, we have a huge online presence, actually. We've got, I don't know, 3.2 million Facebook fans or whatever and um and, and some of our kind of online content is accessed through those social media channels we've got dj mag tv where we broadcast dj's live streams and, and and so on and in terms of the actual magazine the the uk mag gets distributed sort of to various places around the world but we've also got these licensees who, who basically do their own version of dj mag some using some of our Content if they like, but basically putting their own localized national spin on on what they cover. So yeah, there's DJ Brazil, DJ Latin America, France, Spain, uh, DJ Mag China is just starting. We've got a North American edition, and 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 so on. We're, we're kind of, if not completely global, we're we're kind of very international anyway. It feels very global to me. <laughs> and talking <laughs> talking about global, I have
0: uh, the latest issue in front of me, and the cover story with Sama Abduladi, I mean, what an interesting story! To be honest, I didn't know much about her music, but I went to check it out. It's fantastic music as well, and great choice for a cover.
1: Yeah, she has got a really interesting story. Yeah, and it, it was it was actually quite mad that we we decided to put her on the cover and and did the the shoot and the interview or whatever a few weeks ago, and that was actually before the latest, I suppose you'd say, hostilities in in that region in the Gaza Strip and um, West Bank and um, Palestine and what have you sort of kicked off again. Um, so that, that put even more of a, um, I suppose, a, um, an, an interesting take on, on her story, which um, as a, a techno DJ and producer in Palestine, she's obviously had her own challenges to cope with over the years. And um, yeah, it's a really interesting story. It's, it's actually online now, having been on the cover of the magazine. So I'd urge people to go and check it out
0: yeah or go and grab the issue because the cover looks actually quite quite pretty as well another thing i was going to say that it feels quite an open magazine as well there's an article about the rise of irish drill again to be honest I, that's not something i would expect uh, i was expecting to read a dj mag but i thought it was quite cool so you're, you you guys are very open to new genres and you always want to keep track of what people are listening right
1: absolutely yeah i mean you know the r- drill in general has been a new sort of sound that, that's emerged over the last few years and, and which we covered in, in other times. And, the, and to, I mean, for me, just as a, a casual kind of fan of music to, to hear that there's a whole Irish drill scene is really interesting. So that's, that, I suppose, on, on that kind of basis, we think, oh, that, that'll that make an interesting feature. So, so yeah, we, we'll, we'll commission a piece on, on Irish drill or music from Nigeria or, you know, anywhere that's, where an interesting new scene or sound is perhaps happening, and that's not to kind of forget the the, the people who have um, sort of built the electronic music scene globally over the past two or three decades, but we'd like to give a broad spread, basically, of, of different um, different subgenres of music that's made electronically.
0: And a very random question, but what have you kind of personally been listening, let's say, this year? Uh, any kind of tips or do you always kind of listen
1: to electronic music um not always i mean some of the time i've i might just have bbc six music on which is a very very diverse station or or another radio thing when i'm kind of in the middle of a deadline or whatever and i can't be constantly putting new music on and I might just have the radio on or, or someone's podcast or something but we get sent a hell of a lot of music every every week every month you know in in the olden days we used to get sent records or cds in the post now it's a load of um emails with with links to new releases new albums new singles and stuff so i try and listen to as many of those as i can which is almost an impossible task really because you can't there's literally hundreds and hundreds of releases a week and you can't listen to them all but I try and listen to a lot of things when, when someone says oh what are you listening to at the moment my mind always goes blank <laughs> kind yeah. of but I, I, I just tend to say oh well loads of it is in the magazine anyway so have a look at that that's a good point and I have to say I
0: kind of miss it when, the, when people used to send more CDs because I don't know it, it was more uh, kind of visuals like oh interesting cover and maybe you have no idea who the artist is but uh, Carl are you optimistic of course here in the uk things are still kind of changing are you optimistic about the return of clubs and 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 festivals because some countries they are opening and you know dj mag is international so you know there is some kind of reasons to be optimistic right
1: um yeah i hope so i mean there, there have been a lot of people in the industry who have been suffering financial hardship or not being able to work that's not only only djs but everyone else who's involved in producing shows like promoters and agents and managers and the whole sort of support staff to a show as well lighting lighting directors you know security there's there's a whole raft of of, of different sort of jobs that have been affected by the, the the pandemic adversely and people yeah, you know are absolutely desperate to to get back to events um it was a bit of a blow last week the other day when um, it was announced that there'd be another month's delay in the uk to to a kind of reopening, and I know a lot of people were disappointed about that. But at the same time, most people are, you know, passionate about what they do and just want to get back to events safely when when the time is right.
0: That was Carl Loban from DJ Mag. Their excellent June issue with Sama Abduladi on the cover is out now. And now for a change of pace and something that is close to my heart being from Brazil. The Barbican opened this week, Cláudia Andujar, The Yanomami Struggle, looking at the art and activism of the Brazilian photographer since the 70s with the Yanomami people. The work is extra relevant now with the constant struggle faced by the Yanomami. Survival International, the global movement supporting tribal peoples, also worked closely with them. For more on the installation, I had the pleasure to speak with Thiago Nogueira, curator of the exhibition and also the contemporary photography curator at Instituto Moreira Salles in Brazil.
2: I'm the head of the contemporary photography department at Instituto Moreira Salles. We are uh, an institute dedicated to the arts and to photography especially. So I approached Claudia five years ago to propose to her to do an exhibition on her uh, Yanomami work and her collaboration with the Yanomami people, which, is, which are uh, people from Northern Amazonia, indigenous people. And also to put together the story of her artistic involvement with the Yanomami, but also her activism, because at a certain point in life, Claudia just uh, abandoned her art and her photography to really move into direct activism and political action. And I thought this was an, a very interesting story, very powerful story that needed to be retold and needed to be addressed. And, and, and I needed to bring back that dimension to her artistic work. So it was a project that I proposed to her to go on her archive, study it and reorganize that trajectory and also talk to many people and, and the Yanomamis and to, to try to understand exactly what she was trying to achieve and what did they accomplish during those times. And it
0: actually feels very current because of the situation in Brazil. So there is really a struggle. Uh, You know, of course, the current president Jair Bolsonaro, he's not really pro-indigenous rights, and I don't think that's kind of a main issue for him as well. So I think that makes it quite current and relevant, right?
2: Yes, definitely. This was supposed to be a historical show to homage this generation that have you know, fought for so many years to defend the injustices of Brazilian government against indigenous people. We couldn't even, when we opened the exhibition in Brazil, we couldn't imagine that Bolsonaro was going to be elected and that all the, all the violence, all the ignorance, all the prejudice against indigenous populations was going to be revived just now. So as we speak now. There are at least 20,000 illegal miners on the Yanomami lands. There has been, last week, many shootings against the Yanomami people. The government is really supporting the mining, saying that Bolsonaro is challenging the demarcation that they achieved in the 90s. He's uh, in favor of mining on indigenous lands, and he really is not enforcing the protection that indigenous people need. So the Yanomami are right now desperate, the same way they were during the dictatorship, to try to protect their people and to make their, you know, their, their dignity and their rights to the land respected. There's a lot of COVID that came into the region because of the illegal mining, but also all sorts of violence from uh, guns, from alcohol, from prostitution, from trafficking, from you know, all this social destructuration that we have brought to their land. So it's quite
0: an an activist exhibition as well, and there's a strong partnership with survival as well, right? Can you tell us a bit more about that?
2: Yeah, I think what Claudia taught us is, you know, what are the limits and what are the purpose of art and what are the ethical commitments that we have to undertake when we do something and who those images serve for. And throughout her life, I think she was, you know, uh, learning to use it and, and, and now trying to teach us how to how to use art to defend other people and not only indigenous people but other minorities and anyone that has suffered injustice because of her own personal story. Claudia came from Europe. She was born in Transylvania and she was, and during her childhood, her family that was Jewish was exterminated. And I think the guilt for her for not having been able to prevent that kind of was the basis of her strength to fight for. Against another extermination against another genocide, so this is not only an art exhibition, it's an exhibition that talks about you know a political posture, a political gesture and, and how we as uh, citizens of this global world can act against those injustices. And it's very important for the exhibition to be seen in tandem with you know, the, the activity of survival and their, their help to spread the message and the visibility and to mobilize in favor of the Anamami indigenous people in Brazil and elsewhere. So they are really helpful in terms of connecting the exhibition with the current situation in, in, in Brazil, because they were also very helpful in the 80s and the hardest years of the struggle to do this connection and to bring Davi Copenawa, the main spokesperson for the Anamami uh, abroad to talk to to other leaders and to really exert some international pressure against the government to try to stop this tragedy
0: and one of the things here that really kind of is fascinating in her images is how spontaneous the pictures are you know because of course you know she's a white woman in in indigenous but she really kind of it feels like she was living with them like it didn't feel like an outsider let's take a picture of this kind of exotic uh, people do you know what I mean it feels so spontaneous and some of them they don't even look at the camera uh, with the pictures Do do, do you see that as well?
2: Yes, I think Claudia has a life now, a lifelong relation to the Anomami. She's been working with them for 50 years. There was one Claudia that arrived at the Anomami and another Claudia today. She, she discovered in the Anomami a sense of belonging, and she realized that and decided that they would become their family. She was embraced by the Anamami community, and I feel that that affection and that relation is completely transparent on her images because you really see that she's deeply involved with the people, deeply connected not only to them personally but to their culture, their understanding of the world and their vision of the world and she's trying to translate that in images to invent a, a photographic representation to that society so that all this knowledge can be shared with us. So it's really it's not about she being European or white or being a foreigner, it, but it's about the ethical commitment and the bond that she has established to the Anomami and how she they sustain this relation together until today. And
0: finally, Thiago, I just want to ask, of course, you work in the cultural sector in Brazil. Has it been quite hard you know, in the last two years? Because as a Brazilian living here in London, it's quite nice to see we have kind of a, an exhibition based in in our country, but. the the culture was a little bit under attack, right, in in the last years, in in a way, in a way.
2: Yes, I think, I mean, the current scenario in Brazil is dramatic because we have a government that doesn't respect diversity, that doesn't respect uh, other voices, that wants to impose one view for culture, not only for culture, but in politics and in society. And it's clearly ignorant and not in favour of minorities. Of all sorts, so he's been attacking not only the indigenous, but the black population, uh, the LGBT, uh, even women. It's, uh, it's a very, very racist and very violent uh, way of dealing with culture, and also withdrawing the, you know, the financial support from culture, trying to censor and direct the activities. This is really, really serious and really, really terrible that's happened right now in Brazil.
0: That was Thiago Nogueira. And make sure to pay a visit to the Barbican if you are in London to see the exhibition. And of course, please also support Survival and their incredible campaign for indigenous people's rights on survivalinternational.org. And finally on the show, an excellent book looking at travel writing. And who better to write this than a travel writer himself, Tim Hannigan. In the travel writing tribe, Journeys in Search of a Genre, Ting looks at where travel writing can go in the twenty-first century. He asks what is actually travel writing, and looks at the genre's squeezy colonial connections. But travel writing is certainly here to stay. Here is Tin with more.
3: That's I mean that's the idea behind the book. It was about kind of addressing some of the unease that I had around this, this thing that I worked in. I, I started as a professional travel writer more on the journalistic and and guidebook side than the literary side originally when I was based in Indonesia I I studied journalism as an undergraduate I had been to Indonesia to go surfing in my early 20s I'm from Cornwall so I'm a surfer and it was a kind of was a standard pilgrimage all the all the sort of young surfers from Cornwall saved their money and went surfing for a few months in the winter in Indonesia so I did that but I kind of fell in love with the place beyond the surf really so I went back there to to live and to work as an English teacher but also to start my kind of writing career as a initially as a sort of freelance travel writer writing journalism pieces for newspapers and magazines and then guidebook stuff and then I did various sort of narrative history books but narrative history books with a with a kind of travel element running through them but I'd always had this slight ethical unease with the the history of travel writing, this thing I was doing, and it had been an idea that had ticked around for a long time, at some point I needed to to confront it, and the best way to do it seemed to be in a travel book about travel writing.
0: I think that's the best way, and and I'm very glad actually that you you, you deal with this kind of unease, because at the same time, I mean, of course there is the unease, but also travel writing is important, And, and even, you know, coming from Brazil, I kind of like to see view from the outsider as well what they think of of my country i'm sure you know you as a british person the same thing if i write a book about the uk but but but, you know but do you do you think this uneasiness is kind of is it getting better uh from this new generation of travel writers do you think
3: um yeah it's interesting that you say that you you like and you, you appreciate that experience of of uh of reading a perspective on the place that you come from from the outside. So I'm I'm from Cornwall, and there's been an awful lot of travel writing done by people from the outside, usually from other parts of the UK, but sometimes from further afield about Cornwall. And it, it is, it's an interesting experience, sometimes slightly uncomfortable and sometimes very annoying, but but always, always there's something attractive about reading somebody else from the outside's account of the place you're from. And I think that fact alone kind of gets beyond that uh, that that simple black and white it's problematic somebody from outside writing about a place as for whether it's getting better I definitely think in in the last we'll say 20 years there have been sort of more more diverse voices more interesting perspectives coming through in travel writing I mean some of the some of the sort of highest profile travel writers published in, in the UK in the last couple of years have been very far removed from that traditional image of the kind of the old Etonian posh white man who kind of dominated it right up to the 1990s. I mean, two the, of the, the really, really good writers who I actually speak to in the book one is Manisha Rajesh and one is Kapki Kasabova. Both of them, you know, write really uh, very, very different style, very different approach, but really interesting books that kind of draw on the perspectives that they have. Both both women, um, Manisha is very much from the UK, but she's of Indian heritage. So in her first book, when she's uh, traveling around India, you know, she's able to have a kind of insider-outsider perspective on it. And then Kapki Kasabova is sort of thoroughly international and uh, she's originally from from Sofia but then lived in New Zealand now lives in the highlands so her books about the sort of Balkan region again have that insider outsider perspective and I think I think that that sort of ambiguous and complicated perspective is really apt to, to travel writing in the 21st century and it, it makes it, makes it uh, a modern genre that speaks to speaks to the way the world is now and to that kind of that that broad mobility rather than just somebody departing from the center of the universe which is basically eton and oxford and going off to going off to wherever it might be whether it's brazil or cornwall or india and reporting back i think we have moved beyond that so yes i do think it has gotten broader anyway but it's always going to be a complicated genre
0: it's, it's always complicated, and one of the things, I mean, I did say that I do enjoy a uh, vision from an outsider, but one thing that is it kind of bothers, and I guess for people perhaps, you know, they're not first world countries, people that live there, it's kind of almost kind of this poverty porn outlook that there is going on. Do, do, do you know what I mean? I mean? I think that's the kind of an issue that perhaps had to be kind of dealt with. Yeah,
3: I, I mean, 100%, and I think, I think that's sort of an issue with with tourism discourse in general, actually beyond just just travel writing, whether it's literary travel writing or commercial travel writing. And I mean, that's something that the academic critique of travel writing has often pointed out, the way that travel writers tend to want the places they go to to be different, to be as exotic as possible. And that typically means avoiding mentioning all the middle-class people in Indonesia living a life that's very much like the middle-class people in Ireland or London or, or, or Brazil or wherever it might be. Those people get left out of the story, and what gets put into the story is the people living in the village with thatched, the thatched roofs and the rice terraces, right? So there's, there's always been that tendency to, to kind of focus on the stuff that's least similar to what your home audience is familiar with and in a way that's understandable you know when we travel we want to experience something different we want to uh, we want to to see new things so it's not it's not a sort of doesn't emerge from any badness but it can very easily reduce the experience of the people in those countries if you if you raise all the kind of modern stuff and again i think i think these days a lot of contemporary travel writers are able to, to go a little bit beyond that, to, to talk about the interesting stuff. I mean, there's, there's, and there have been for 30 years, actually, books that look at modernity as well as traditional stuff. So but it's definitely a thing, uh, and I think it always will be, but possibly, possibly it's worse in the, in the more journalistic side and certainly in the televisual side. I mean, television travel documentaries love a traditional village.
0: They, they do, they do. And they love taking a celebrity, right? And kind of <laughs> celebrities right, yes. in Moldova, whatever, you know, it's kind of. Uh, and w- what about the job of the travel writer? Do you think, do, do they always have just to stick to the facts, almost like a, proper journalist writing for a, a newspaper or or are they allowed to be a little bit more kind of I don't know wrong ah, and are uh,
3: you <laughs> you have you have uh, come to the ultimate question about travel okay. writing uh, and one to which there is no simple answer and I think even in travel writing in its straightforward journalistic form you know, travel pieces for newspapers and magazines I, I think very often when you look at it the standards are not quite the same that you'd expect of other journalism. You often get people quoted, uh, and their full name isn't given, and those little those little details that you get in any other kind of even feature journalism, the full name, the age, the provenance. It's just Fernando, a man I met in the street, you know, and the quote might not be strictly verbatim. So it, it I mean, the general the general thing is, as readers, when we read a travel book we kind of assume we take it as a non-fiction work and I think that's pretty bedded into the way we read and what's telling is how upset people get when they find out about a travel writer who's kind of unreliable. I mean Bruce Chatwin is a famously controversial figure because his travel books um, in Patagonia and the Songlines are not entirely to be trusted um, how much of it really happened is not clear and, and people, people get quite upset by that very often. My personal take is that it is the most ethical approach to attempt to be strictly accurate in what you do, but then also to recognize if you're writing in book form, in narrative book form, there's always a process of, of just recovering your own memories and then all the other things that impact on you, all the things you've read before and the influences, those are going to shape what you choose to put into it. So I think a good travel book always has to have a kind of meta narrative where you reflect on, on how you've put the text together. So in my own writing, I, I certainly don't make things up without allowing people to know. What I've done in the, in the travel writing tribe in a couple of places, just because I sort of wanted to experiment with the things, the models that I've been given by other writers. There's a couple of flagrantly made up bits that are fantastical, and you know they're fantastical because, well, there's a flying pig in one and uh, there's the ghost of uh, Sigmund Freud in another. So that's an idea I took from a writer called Rory MacLean, who's one of the few writers who openly flirts with fiction in his travel books. And that's what he does. He puts things that are clearly not true as a way to kind of signal that that it's unreliable. Um, so I sort of try and combine, on the one hand, being as strict as I can, and then putting in some bits that are obviously, obviously made up.
0: And let's be honest, Tim, I think travel writing will always exist. I think people generally love the genre as well. And I think it said here in, in your book, even during COVID, a lot of people couldn't travel. And I think some people just want to be transported anywhere, really, uh, Indonesia, Brazil or, or anywhere else that they, they, they don't leave
3: absolutely and i think in a funny way covid has probably been good for travel writing i mean people have always been asking or oh, is travel writing dead and that's been going on since at least the 1940s i mean uh, when you got to the second world war a lot of people said well that's the death of travel writing because there'd kind of been a boom time for it in the 1930s and then after the war people said it'll never recover but of course it, it did it always comes back it's had a sort of a fairly stagnant 20 years. It was huge uh, in the UK and in the US, really, up through the 90s until the early 2000s. And then it seemed to fall away. But actually, if you look at what's been published in nonfiction over the last 20 years in the UK, a lot of the kind of big literary nonfiction is still travel writing. It's all the, the what is often called nature writing, stuff like Rob McFarlane and so on. Those are actually travel books even if they're not going beyond the UK, they're kind of first-person journey narratives. And I think there was already the beginnings of a shift beyond kind of domestic territories in, in that. Like Macfarlane's last book, was Underland, was, was much more international than some of his early ones. It goes much further afield. And I actually think that COVID will have accelerated that. Because there is that, that thirst when everyone's stuck at home. Suddenly, suddenly they can't go there themselves. So what's the best way to get there is pick up a book. So I, I think we probably will see a, a kind of popular resurgence of, of travel writing in the next, next five or 10 years. Well, and
0: besides your fantastic book, The Travel Writing Tribe, I mean, are there any kind of travel writers that you're following or that perhaps you enjoy? Maybe as a tip to our listeners here as well. Your well,
3: book, of course. <laughs> well, yeah, definitely, definitely my one, my one, of course. But the two I mentioned earlier are great. I mean, uh, a Capricaspo from Manisha Rajesh, very different style. Um, Manisha's books are much more sort of you know, grand adventure. So if you want a grand, vicarious trip around the world on trains, go go with them. And then if you want something sort of more sort of stranger, exploring memory and identity, then Captain Gassboga's books are, are absolutely fantastic. So I'd highly recommend them. And there's a whole bunch of others in the book of people that I kind of, um, yeah, talk to talk to and meet. So it's it's, it's a good sort of little taster of, of other travel writers of older generations, and of, of newer ones as well. You'll find a whole bunch of them in
0: there. There was Tim Hannigan there. The travel writing tribe, Journeys in Search of a Genre, is out now. Well, that's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Nora Hall. And if you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpmonaco.com. At and remember, we're back next Saturday at the same time. And meanwhile, you can listen to the show again and subscribe at monaco.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Before we go, a little song for you. I think of travel listening to this. Serge Gainsbourg, Sea, Sax, and Sun. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye
2: from me. the Soleil. The
0: zenith.
2: Tant dix-huit dix